Amen. Thank you for describing how God has claimed us and named us in many ways, Evanda and the Sunnyside Choir. Appreciate it. Now, Easter Sunday, as many of you know, was over a month ago, and yet we still continue to celebrate the good news of our risen Lord, not only because that's what we're about in terms of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but because we're in the season of Easter. This season of Easter is going to culminate in the festival of Pentecost, uh, which is going to happen in two weeks on June 5th. Um, And since Jesus has conquered death, that's what we celebrate in the season of Easter. We can act boldly in our service to God, knowing that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of the one who lived, died, and lives again for us. This is the central point that we're trying to bring home in our sermon series on verbs of faith. That because of God's great love for us, we respond with actions not to earn God's love, but because our faith moves us to act. We've considered uh, so far how faith motivates us to run, how faith motivates us to obey, to change, to arise, last week to undergo confirmation, and today we're going to consider the verb baptize. Now, God's spirit is pretty neat. I was sharing with our worship leaders this morning as we were gathering that um, when I had titled this Sunday's sermon, it was actually before Mia, had, Mia Rotolo had been born. Um, and so for the Rotolos to ask about this Sunday for baptism, I was like, yes, that's perfect. What a blessing it is to have a baptism as we consider our own baptisms as a way of responding to God. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16, verses 9 through 15. You can follow along in your bulletins or on page 136 of the New Testament section of your Red Pew Bibles. We're going to return in this reading to Paul, who has left Jerusalem now and is on a missionary trip to the Gentiles. This is Acts 16, 9 through 15. Listen now for God's word to you. During the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come, stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? God of the waters, you transform us through the power of your spirit. Illuminate this passage for our hearts and minds that we might worship and serve you better. 
We pray this in the name of the word made flesh, your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I wonder if you have had the experience of having like a tremendous success in your life, followed up by a disorienting failure. When I was a freshman in high school, I was on the baseball team as a pitcher. I didn't throw 90 miles per hour, but I was one of the pitchers you would describe as crafty. I had a curveball that had some movement that I could drop in for a strike or get people to swing at out of the strike zone. I had a knuckleball that neither I nor my catchers knew where it was going. (laughs) And that season during my freshman year, I felt unstoppable. I can't remember whether I was like the ace of my team, the number one pitcher or, or, or number two, but I certainly remember that I was walking around with a little bit of swagger. So fast forward to my sophomore year when all of a sudden couldn't control my fastball. My knuckleball didn't have any movement, was just floating there. And batters were hammering everything I threw. I had no idea what was happening, only that the skill which had come so easily before seemed to have just disappeared, gone. I felt discouraged and I felt like somehow I had been unfairly treated. I wonder if you've experienced something like that in your life before. This is what Paul, I think, is experiencing in this passage. You see, immediately prior to this passage, Paul had come to Jerusalem. And he had come to Jerusalem for a very important reason, to advocate for the preaching of the gospel to Gentiles. This was not a given at this time in the story of the early church. But Paul had experienced great success in a city called Antioch. In other areas, many Gentiles had converted to Christianity. And in Paul's mind, the early church shouldn't put any roadblocks in the way of their conversion. There was some discussion at this council in Jerusalem around whether Gentiles should be expected to obey the Mosaic law. This is not just the Ten Commandments that we find in Exodus 20, but the 600-some-odd laws that we find all throughout Exodus and Leviticus Numbers and Deuteronomy, the places where many Bible reading plans go to die. Um, And there's much of the Mosaic law that is commendable and good. Don't get me wrong. Uh, But there are dietary laws, laws of ritual purity that would not have made sense to the Gentiles. And in Paul's mind, this was like, this was a slam dunk. Let's not worry about this and let's move on. Let's allow the Gentiles to give glory to God. So the council convenes in Jerusalem, and they agree with Paul's argument after they have some deliberation, and this was huge. Paul had scored an enormous victory with the mother church. He was flying high. He probably had some swagger coming away from the Jerusalem council. But as he leaves Jerusalem, uncertainty strikes. He's got a burden. He desires eagerly to try and evangelize throughout the nations. And so he goes. Um, he, he, he tries to go to Asia and Bithynia. These are two regions in modern-day western Turkey. Um, but we're told at the very beginning of chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit forbids him from going there. Huh. These are regions that Paul had come close to on a previous missionary journey and had been turned away then as well. I wonder how Paul must have felt 
having been validated in his mission by this council in Jerusalem, only to be turned away from what he thought was his mission by the very Spirit of God. And yet, Paul trusted God's Spirit. Paul trusted that his faith in God's Spirit would ultimately direct his desires toward what mattered most, would direct his steps toward what matters most. And if his faith was preventing him from entering these regions, well, there must be a reason. So this is the context for our passage this morning, where Paul has this vision of this Macedonian fella calling him to cross over to Macedonia. This is uh, the northeast of modern-day Greece. So it's not far from western Turkey, but it's a different location. And immediately, the writer of Acts thrusts us into the logistics of this journey with strange place names that we don't really understand. Um, But it's a good reminder, I think, to us of how differently the world worked then. Instead of driving or flying, Paul sailed, putting himself at the mercy of the wind and the waves, trusting that the Lord who called him would bring him safely to his destination. This is similar in many ways to when we are baptized. We trust that the Lord of the waters will bring us safely to the places that God has called us, that God has claimed us and called us God's own. And God does bring Paul to his destination safely. God provides good winds so that they could take a straight course to Samothrace and then take two more days to get to Philippi. Now, as they arrive in Philippi, Paul's general practice, what he usually does when he arrives in a place, was to gather together with the other Jews in the synagogue on the Sabbath. I imagine Paul thinks that if he can gather together with folks who sort of understand his worldview, the way he comes at the world as a Jewish man, then that would be the first place he could preach the gospel. But Paul doesn't do this in Philippi. Why not? Is he changing his practice? Well, most likely... Philippi didn't have a synagogue. For Philippi not to have a synagogue, that would mean that Philippi had very few Jews, or at least very few married Jewish men in residence. You see, it took 10 married Jewish men to constitute a synagogue. If you only had nine married Jewish men, but like 100 Jewish women, that would not be enough to constitute a synagogue at that point. And without a synagogue, the small Jewish community in Philippi, well, they may have not really had a place within the city gates to meet. And so, like their forebears, when the Jews were in exile in Babylon, they went down to the river to pray. Psalm 137, they may have remembered this, which begins with the exiles remembering Zion by the waters of Babylon. And so they gather too outside the city outside the safety of the city gates for a place of prayer. Now, this gathering by the river was mostly, if not entirely, made up of women. And while women weren't considered at that time worthy of founding a synagogue, the Spirit of God does not show such partiality. As Paul would later say in his letter to the Galatians, there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male and female, for we have all been united in Christ Jesus. However, Paul still certainly had the sensibilities of a Pharisee 
The Pharisees, you may remember, are, are a Jewish sect that really, really bought into fulfilling the law, hook, line, and sinker, every letter, every jot, every tittle. He was aware of the law. He was aware, Paul was, of the norms and expectations of a Jewish religious community. And having just experienced disorientation of being blocked from places he thought God was leading him to evangelize and spread the gospel, this gathering may have been disappointing to him at first. Where are the important movers and shakers in this community? Why couldn't Paul have been able to preach to them, perhaps, he was thinking? must have seemed in some sense like a setback for him. But God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God is going to lead faithful individuals to places that matter, even if we can't see how they matter. See, when we commit ourselves, when we submit ourselves to baptism, to being claimed by God, we are no longer our own. We're no longer the ones with a majority stake in our own lives. We don't control when we sail a straight course and when we're going to sail a more circuitous route. God's the one who's driving the bus. Now, Paul would likely never have chosen to be outside the city gates of Philippi, preaching to a group of women who seemed to be without any civic influence or authority. However, Paul had surrendered his life to Jesus. And that's where Jesus had called him, through a vision, by prohibiting him from going elsewhere. And Paul had committed to living out his baptism wherever it would take him, trusting that his faith is going to focus him on what matters most to God. In this respect, baptism is somewhat of a frightening prospect. What parents in their right mind, no offense, Chip and Olivia, uh, what parents in their right mind would hand their child over to God who doesn't always use people gently? who doesn't always bring people to places that they want to go? What person in their right mind would surrender their autonomy to the God who might bring them to places and situations that are difficult? There's another way to consider this, I think. We know that we inhabit a broken world filled with other broken people. And in the course of our lives, we're going to encounter the sharp, broken edges of one another. We will be wounded by the world, and we will be wounded even by those who we consider friends. It's the world, in fact, that doesn't use us gently. It's the world that brings us into situations that are difficult. And the truth about baptism is that in baptism, we remove the power that the world has over us. Instead, we choose to live in reality. We choose to buy into the reality that there are going to be times and places we're not going to get what we want, and we will feel disoriented. In baptism, we choose to embrace the truth that God has claimed us and called us God's own. We choose to embrace the promise that just as water can take broken pieces of glass and erode them, smooth them out. So too can, can God in the waters of baptism smooth out our brokenness, making us into a new creation. In baptism, we embrace reality. 
with all of its hard edges, with all of its unknowns. Baptism focuses on the things that matter most. It allows us to understand and buy into the reality that life will not always be easy, but that life always has at its center the redeeming work of the person of Jesus Christ to make us new. Baptism allows us to welcome this reality for ourselves, for our children, and for our community. And that baptism, friends, takes faith. Lydia is the first recorded European convert from any of Paul's missionary journeys. And while she might not have had the authority as a woman to form a synagogue, it was her house that became a central location for the church in Philippi. What was impossible as far as forming a synagogue was not only possible, but welcomed in the early church. With Lydia's baptism, Paul gained a launching point from which to share the gospel in Philippi and the surrounding region. And while Paul might have chosen, if he had his druthers, a different path for his missionary journey, the path that God put him on was the path that put him in the places where he was needed, where God needed him most. So after her baptism, Lydia insists on providing hospitality for Paul and for Paul's companions. You see, in baptism, it's not just that Lydia is claimed by God. She's also given a job. This is the wonderful thing about choosing to live as a baptized child of God, friends. In baptism, we're given a uniform and we're given a position and we're expected to contribute to God's team. This might be the scariest part of all for some of you, um, that there's no sitting on the bench as baptized members of the community. There's no probationary period. We're put into the game. And Lydia was able to jump into the game by providing what she had. I want to share one more thing with you. In Greek, there are actually two words for dipping someone in the water. And they sound really similar. There's bapto, and then there's baptizo. The best way to understand the difference between the two words actually is by consulting a pickle recipe, of all things. Um, And this is a pickle recipe that was written 200 years before Christ. Now, I've never made a pickle, but I'm told that in order to make a pickle, you need to take a cucumber and dip it in boiling water first to get it clean. Bapto, you dip it in the boiling water. After this, you immerse the cucumber in the pickle juice. That's where baptizo is used in this pickle recipe. And while a boiled cucumber will eventually cool off and return to the state of being a cucumber, a pickled cucumber is never going to get unpickled. That's the difference between bapto and baptizo. If you're baptoed, then it can be undone. If you're baptizoed, you are changed forever. When I got disoriented and discouraged as a baseball pitcher, I ended up quitting. I realized that while baseball was a ton of fun, I didn't value it enough to put in the hours of work to recover my control and to get better as a pitcher. I had baptoed myself into baseball. There was a temporary, not a permanent change. My hope for us, friends, is that this church will be made up of a people that are totally and completely changed 
by the claim that our Lord has made upon us. Let us be Christians that are baptized, not just baptoed. Let us be Christians, believers, baptized members of the church that are given a uniform and a position and put into the game that trust that faithful focus us where God would have us be. And let us trust that God will carry us into places that while they may be dangerous, God has claimed us and God has our best interests in mind. May it be so. Amen.